You're listening to audio from City Light South Church. If you'd like to check out more resources and find ways to get involved, go to citylightsouth.org.au. It's good, let me tell you this up front, it's good to be grounded. It's good to be grounded. That's what we've called this series in 2 Peter, grounded. It might not always feel good, but it is good. Um, you all know that I grew up, most of you know I grew up in America, and it's common there for parents to tell kids that they're grounded. Any of you grew up getting grounded ever by your parents? See one or two of you? I, I find that that phrase isn't as commonly used here in Australia as it was where I grew up. Um, I spent, I can say, more than a couple of days being grounded as a kid. Well, my, my movements and my privileges were restricted. Um, I, I, if you had a chance to chat to either of my sisters, they would probably tell you that a couple extra days would have been helpful. I can't remember even now why I was grounded in any specific time, um, but I can tell you that I didn't like it. I didn't like it when it happened, and I, and I wasn't meant to. The practice of grounding your kids, that word, where it comes from, it, it, it comes from a generation of parents who many of them fought in two world wars. Um, you know, it was World War I and World War II when, uh, there, when fighter pilots began to be a thing. And, 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 and a fighter pilot could be grounded for any number of reasons. Perhaps misconduct, perhaps um, being un- sick or, or tired, uh, perhaps because of mechanical issues or other dangers. Um, why is that? Why would you ground a pilot, a fighter pilot? Well, a rogue pilot... A rogue pilot can be just as dangerous as a broken airplane. And even though being grounded is not going to feel good at the time, when it comes to aviation, it's quite effective in keeping people safe. Being grounded is good. It's good. You, you might um, remember, if you've ever seen the movie, The Wizard of Oz. Like, I don't know if you were a kid, if you ever watched that movie and you ever thought about what it would be like to be in, a, in your house if it, as it was being lifted off the f- its foundations by a cyclone and carried up into the sky. Um, you know, it looks fun and interesting in a movie. In real life, probably not so much. You'd probably really, really want and wish to be grounded in that moment. Um, I saw a video this week as I was kind of thinking about this of, of, of two young boys who actually, this actually happened, were jumping on a trampoline as that trampoline was lifted off the ground by winds and, and flipped over the neighbor's fence. Um, which again, you know, if, you know, there's a certain age of boys that might think that sounds really exciting. And they, I'm sure they have a great story to tell, but both of them walked away with fractured arms. So being grounded is, is actually a good thing. It might sound boring, but it's good. And, and that's not just true for rogue pilots and houses and trampolines. It's true for all of us who are in the process of growing to be more like Jesus. You, you know, the Apostle Paul defines Christian maturity by telling us what it's not. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, he, and following, he says that all of us are aiming for maturity, to be more like Jesus, right? We're fueled in that by believing in Jesus, and by knowing who Jesus is. That's what makes us mature. When we see him for who he really is, we become more like him. And once we reach maturity, he says this. He says, then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching. Instead, we'll be like Jesus. 
be grounded, we'll be mature. Both of our feet not moving an inch from the faith and the hope that we have in him. It's good to be grounded. Over the next eight weeks, we're going to be walking through a letter, walking through to Peter. Um, it's his second letter, and for all we know, is his last letter, the last thing he ever wrote um, before he died and went, returned to be with Jesus. Um, Peter wrote this letter, we, we think, to the very same audience that he wrote his first letter, 1 Peter, and that was to a group, a diverse group of Christians living in what is now the country of Turkey, um, what was then called Asia Minor. And these Christians were suffering for being Christians, suffering because of their obedience, their, their tenacity, their resilient faith. They were suffering. But they were chosen. They were chosen for this life. They were chosen by God, by name, for glory. But first they would suffer just like Christ had suffered. In the period of time that has passed now between 1 Peter and 2 Peter, a couple of important things have happened. First, Peter's own situation changed. He has reached the end, essentially, of his life. Um, chapter 1, verse 14, he tells us that Jesus has personally revealed to him that he will soon lay aside, he uses this euphemism, I will soon lay aside my tent. That means he's about to die. And uh, again, so this is, probably Peter's final words on earth. And in, and in this, if you could think about what would you, if you knew you were going to die soon, what would you write? Like what would be the most important things that you would want to communicate to people who you love and care about? That's what Peter is, is doing here. He's exerting all this effort to ensure that these Christians who are so precious to him keep on believing and keep on growing to be more like Jesus after he's gone. There's an urgency, there's an intensity to this letter. It's kind of, you know, turned up the volume a little bit from his first letter. It's a, it's a man who knows his time on earth is short. The second thing that's changed between 1 Peter and 2 Peter is that some people inside these churches in Turkey have apparently drifted away from the apostles' teaching. There's been these false teachers preaching a false message that have arisen not from outside the church but from within the church. And Peter's going to confront them and challenge what they're doing in this book. They had exchanged the true gospel for a false one and they're taking others down this dangerous path with them. L later on in the series, we'll unpack maybe the, some of the specifics of what they were teaching and why it's not good. But... I can just say now with Peter that it, it wasn't a small disagreement here over a, a third order, a second order doctrine. These guys were denying central things, central truths, and paving a wide path to hell for anyone who followed them. So again, you can understand why Peter is so urgently intense in this letter. He's about to die, and the church he cares so much about is uh, about to be blown over and blown away. So to paraphrase another pastor I heard once, the message of 2 Peter is essentially this. Time is short. Hell is real. Jesus says go. And Peter doesn't waste a second. Neither will we um, as we begin this journey toward being grounded. Grounded in the life-saving, Christ-exalting gospel. So let me pray and then I'll, I'll read the first two verses and then we'll, we'll unpack them this morning. God, thank you for your word. 
Thank you for Peter, your servant, who writes so passionately to people that we do not know, but people who, by your grace in Christ, we are connected to, we are related to as one family. And so I pray that the, 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 the words and the wisdom and the truth that he has for them, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, imprint those and plant those truths on our hearts as well. Lord, do in us what only you can do by your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to read 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 from the CSB. Simeon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith equal to ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. So just two verses. Set the scene already. Peter the Apostle, he's got this big, manly personality tamed by the Lion of Judah who loved him. He's the author of this letter. Lots of scholars believe that Peter didn't actually write this letter, and, and I'm not going to you know, give all the reasons why they think that, but I, I, I can tell you, if you're interested, um, why I'm not convinced by their skepticism. Um, this series is built on my belief that this is actually the Apostle Peter who spent face-to-face -face time with Jesus who wrote this letter. Um, and again, he doesn't tell us who his audience is up front, like he does in 1 Peter, but he makes reference in chapter 3, verse 1, to this being his second letter. Um, so we're going to assume, then, that he's writing to the same group of people. Uh, in the opening greeting, we get this big glimpse of the theme of, of the whole letter. You might be thinking, these verses sound like the opening lines of all the letters in the Bible. What is particularly unique or special about them? But there are some unique words and ideas here that communicates some important truths. So let, let's start with what Peter wants for these men and women that he's writing to. Look at verse 2, the blessing that he wants them to experience. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This is exponential, overflowing, never-ending grace and peace. And he wants them and he wants you and me to experience that in a world that is the opposite, in a world full of ungrace and non-peace, a world of judgment and angst inhabited by ordinary people, ordinary Christians who are full of grace and peace. And that sounds good, but how do we get there? How do we, how do we achieve a state of, of, of such peace that even when the winds blow and the, the waves crash and the diagnosis comes and the, the bad news breaks, that grace and peace remain. Well, according to these open lines, opening lines, the life of overflowing grace and peace comes from knowledge. From knowledge. You're going to see this word knowledge a lot in 2 Peter. And specifically, it's knowledge of three things. It's knowledge of God, so knowing who God is. It's knowledge of yourself, knowing who you are. And it's knowledge of what you've received. Grace upon grace upon grace. So let's start with knowing who God is. Peter knew who Jesus was. Peter was the, the first one to ever identify Jesus as the Christ, the rescuer, the promised Messiah. 
Matthew's gospel records this for us in chapter 16. Jesus is uh, away on a little retreat with his disciples. He's away from the crowds, and he asks them privately. He says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say? It's a question that he asks you and me and, and all of us. Who, who is Jesus? Is he simply a man, a, a teacher, or, or is he something more? Who do you say that he is? So Jesus is testing them. He's calling them to believe in him as something more than just a friend, a teacher, an example. P- Simon Peter offers this example or this answer. He says, you, looking at Jesus, are the Messiah. Messiah there means chosen one, promised one, Christ. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus, who had up to this point kind of shied away from publicly declaring himself to be the Messiah, he looks at Peter and he says, you are correct. And he commends him. Not saying, oh man, Peter, you're so smart. How did you, how did you figure it out? You got me. No, that's not what he says. He says, you know something, Peter? You answered like that because God the Father gave you that answer. You, you downloaded that knowledge direct from heaven. It was revealed to you supernaturally. And, and on that bedrock of knowledge, I'm going to build my church. On that confession of faith in Jesus as Messiah, the true church is going to be built, it's going to stand, and not all the forces of hell are going to knock it over. Now, some people have misunderstood Jesus here, um, including many of our Catholic friends. They think when Jesus gave Peter his nickname, or his spiritual name, Peter, which literally means rock in Greek, um, they believe that that meant that the church would be built on Peter the man, that he would be the leader of the church and everybody that he taps on the shoulder to succeed him would be the leader of the true church. But that's not what Peter means here. And we we know that, we can kind of deduce that by if you read on in that scene in Matthew 16, right after Peter gives this beautiful, supernaturally downloaded answer to Jesus, he says something just a few seconds later that make him sound like an ungodly fool and Jesus has to call him out. So this isn't about the consistent, unwavering faith of Peter the man. This is about being grounded in the truth of who Christ is, who Jesus is. Back to the opening lines of 2 Peter. Peter mentions Jesus' name three times in these first two verses. Twice he calls him, just like in Matthew 16, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And one time he says he calls him Jesus our Lord. Lord and Christ here are are two exalted titles for Jesus that communicate who he is. He's not simply a great man among men, not even a great king among kings, but he is the man, the one man, the one king, the one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He's the greatest king with the greatest name, and yet he's something even greater still. Look at Peter's language at the end of verse 1. He calls Jesus the man, our God and Savior. This is one of the clearest statements 
in all of the Bible that Jesus isn't just the human Messiah sent by God to rescue his fellow humans. He is, in fact, God in the flesh. He's both fully human and fully God. And we get that in the very first verse of 2 Peter. It took the church, the early church, about 400 years to study scripture and come to universal agreement as to who God is and who Jesus is according to scripture. And they would have looked to verses like this one to see they play a key role. Not only does Peter call Jesus our God, at the end of verse 2, he also draws a distinction between knowledge of God and knowledge of Jesus. So in verse 2, it seems that God, or God the Father, and Jesus are both God, and yet they're distinct. That is where we get, that's one place we get the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one, and God exists in three persons, who are equal to one another, fully God, but distinct from one another. We, we get it from just reading the words of Scripture. The early church didn't make this up. It's, it's here. God and the Father and Jesus are both God, yet they are distinct. And remember, all of these things were supernaturally revealed to the apostles. And so what we confess, what you confess as Christians, are the truths that were revealed to Peter and the apostles. Sometimes people ask, why is it that Christians claim to worship one God and three persons. Why the Trinity? It's so confusing. It's so hard to get our minds around. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, ministry, doing ministry among Muslim people, and that was one of the chief objections all the time. This, why, the, why? Why do you do this? It's, it's you, you, you either worship one God or three. It can't be both. Um, our kids have been learning it, it, the catechism lately. Um, I, I don't know if you've, you're, if you've got kids uh, that have shared this with you, but question three of the catechism goes like this. I don't know if any of you kids want to help me out with this, but the question is, how many persons are there in God? Anybody know the answer? Tori, you know the answer. What is it? Is it, is it two? You got it. Three persons. That, and that is thanks to our wonderful kids team who is taking a very well-deserved break because you're doing amazing. Three persons in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, we get this, again, not because the early church made it up, but because we see it so clearly revealed and taught in Scripture. Memorizing catechism is a powerful tool, not just for kids, but for adults as well. And so you can go online, you can find the New City Catechism. Um, there's an app, it's free. I really commend that to you. Um, because we need to know who God is, what he's like. It actually means something for us if we want to have the life of overflowing peace. Um, I was working from home this week, and uh, I was there um, to answer the door when um, a couple of gentlemen from the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, came calling. And um, they asked me, they didn't ask me if I was interested in religion, um, or they asked me if I was interested in a f living in a world of peace and harmony. That was their opening question uh, to me. And I said that I was. I mean, who wouldn't be? We don't want to live in a world of, of violence and strife. 
Um, and they, they told me that the Bible said that this world is coming, this world of peace and harmony is coming, and that Jesus will be the king uh, of this world. And, and that sounds pretty good uh, so far, but, but it's, it's, it's more interesting what they didn't tell me, because I, I do know a little bit about what our Jehovah's Witnesses' neighbors believe. Um, they don't believe, for example, that Jesus is God. They believe that, that Jesus is an angel, or the, the first created angel. Um, he's sort of like a, like a hand-picked William Wallace who is sent by God to rescue us and be our king forever. But he's not God. He's not God. He's worthy of honor, but not worship. In fact, if, you ever, if you've ever looked at a, um, a Bible, one of the, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they have their own translation, and largely it is to edit out references to Jesus being God and to receiving worship. Um, and so the question I wanted to ask them is that if Jesus is merely the first and highest angel, then what guarantee do we have that Jesus won't become like the angel of light before him who fell and rebelled against God and took a third of the angels with him? That's Lucifer, the devil. And, we, and the answer is we don't know. We, we, we don't have any guarantees if Jesus is simply an angel, simply a, a powerful being created by God, that he won't fall, that he won't disappoint, that he won't fail. If Jesus is not God, then your future is not guaranteed. It is not certain. Everything that you want the future to be, therefore, you have to make it happen. You have to work for it if Jesus is not God. That's why Jesus said these words in John chapter 3. He said about himself, he said, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. And when you, when you think about that phrase, the wrath of God remains on a person, it's, it's not simply describing someone who's afraid of death or afraid of going to hell. I mean, that's part of it. But, but really, what it looks like for the wrath of God to remain on a person, it's, it's more like this. If, if, if you want to know grace and peace and life, then you have to earn it and achieve it for yourself. You have to conform. You have to work. It's all up to you. That weight, that burden you feel, is what Jesus meant when he said the wrath of God remains on those who have to work out their own salvation if Jesus is not God. It matters what we believe to be true. It matters forever. It matters for your future. It matters for your neighbor's future. I, I don't know, many of you have neighbors and friends who are Jehovah's Witnesses, who are Mormons, who are atheists, who are Muslims, none of whom believe that Jesus is God and worthy of worship, none of whom have a future of life and grace and peace that's guaranteed. It's only in knowing who God is, who he's revealed himself to be in Jesus, that we know the pathway to everlasting peace. Now, I want to look at Peter's opening lines again. I want you to see that it's not only knowing who, who God is, but it's also knowing who you are. And Peter knew who he was. So let's look at that. He introduces three important aspects of himself. 
He, he, he tells us his name, he tells us his status, and he tells us his vocation. First, his name. I know it's not that impressive to know your own name, right? It's pretty basic. But it's interesting the name that Peter uses here. He uses his actual birth name, the name that would have been on his birth certificate, Simeon. Simeon is the, is the Hebraic uh, spelling, if you like, of Simon. And it's the name his parents gave him. It's the name he would have been called by his mom, dad, when he was a little boy. Maybe he was in trouble. Um, Peter is not his middle name. Peter is the name that Jesus gave him. Peter is a Greek name that means rock. Um, it signified who he was. He was bold. He was headstrong. And it also signifies who Jesus was making him to be, a man of rock-solid faith. See how these two names go together. Simeon points to his heritage, his Jewishness, his family of origin, his nationality. Peter to his new family, his relationship with Jesus and his faith in Jesus. In the same way, when, when you and I and anyone becomes a Christian, notice you don't lose your old name. You're still you. You still belong to your family of origin, to your nationality, to you still have your personality and your unique things that make you you, your DNA, all of it. It's, you still have it. And yet, when you take on Christ, when you put on the character of Christ, when you die to yourself to, to follow Christ, you, will, you, you, you see the two things come together. Your, your, your personality and your, your unique story don't disappear. Those things are redeemed. And he makes use of them for his glory and your joy. It's not that Jesus was, you know, out roaming the earth or his spirits out looking and, and, and he just happened to, to bump into you one day and, and, and said, oh, that'll do. No. See, he knew your name, your birth name, before you knew it, before your parents knew it, before you were born, and he planned all along to redeem it. He wrote your name in the book of life before it existed. And so being able to see the story he's writing in and through your story is the pathway to everlasting peace. Peter didn't just know his name. He knew his status. He knew his position in the kingdom. His, in the pecking order, if you like. He, he, his status was a servant. A servant. Just like his master, who said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life. Peter says, I am a servant. And, and we, are, we have the same status in the kingdom of God. We are servants of the king. You know, what, what is a servant? Well, the word servant is the same word that can be translated slave. Someone with no status, or at least a very low status, or very little rights, no property of your own. You just do what the master tells you, what the boss tells you. And yet in the Bible, the word servant doesn't just indicate humility. It also indicates high honor. Moses, King David, all of the prophets, they knew themselves and they called themselves servants of the Most High God. And, and, and you see, where does the honor come from? It's not in the role and the position, the job description of being a servant. It comes from who are, who are you serving? Who, who are you a servant of? Whose court, whose palace, are you in? Whose family are you in? And you're in the family, in the court of the most high 
God, you're his. You're on his team. You're in his family. You have his name. See, that's high honor. Peter echoes, in calling himself a a servant, echoes King David, the greatest king in all of uh, biblical history other than Jesus. And he writes of himself in Psalm 84, he says, I, King David, would rather be a doorkeeper, a, a slave in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. To, to be a servant is a, is a humble status, but to be a servant in God's house is the highest status that any man or woman could ever achieve. Peter, like us, he knew what an honor it was to serve the Lord Most High. So he knew his name, he knew his status, he also knew his vocation. He is an apostle, one of the 12 appointed by Jesus to spearhead the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, none of us in this room are apostles. We all have our own vocation. It's important to know what yours is. If you don't know your vocation, it's really, it's, it's your main occupation. What you spend a lot of your daylight waking hours doing. Maybe you, some, some of us are paid for our vocation, some of us not. Um, you might enjoy what you do, you might not. But it's the thing that God has given you in his wisdom to provide, not only provide for yourself and others, but to contribute to the flourishing of his world. Your vocation can change over time, but you, you all have one. Whether you're in business or working trade or you're managing your household or your main occupation is creating beautiful things for other people to enjoy. Peter didn't just know his job title. He knew that in his role, in his vocation, he was uniquely positioned to use his gifts to glorify God and to lead others to glorify God in that role. And so are you in whatever your vocation happens to be. Peace comes from from knowing your name, knowing your status, and knowing your vocation. That you don't have to be everything. You don't have to achieve everything. You can resist, sorry, rest in his peace You can rest his peace knowing that he's got you right where he wants you to be. And you can trust him with your whole life. So peace comes from knowing what, most importantly, who God is, and also knowing who you are. But finally, it also comes from knowing what you've received. Knowing what you've received. Peace goes hand in hand with grace. Grace is a gift. And receiving real grace always leads to real peace multiplied, overflowing. Look back at verse 1. Peter is writing, he says, to those who have received a faith equal to ours through the righteousness of God and of Savior Jesus Christ. See, he's not writing to people who have a faith like him or people who have demonstrated faith by their godly example. He's not writing people who came to faith one day when they decided to believe in Jesus or people who finally overcame all of their doubts and all of their backsliding and finally achieved the same level of faith as Peter and the apostles have. No, he's writing not to those who have achieved faith. He's writing to those who have received faith. And there is a world of difference between achieving and receiving. Why? Why do I say that? We are hardwired as humans to be achievers 
more than we are to be receivers. We, we, we want to achieve for God more than we want to receive from God. And yet the gospel of grace has nothing to do with achieving for two very important reasons. First, you will never be able to achieve enough or believe enough. The more you know Jesus, the more you know yourself, the more you will begin to see the chasm between his holiness and your lack of holiness, between his righteousness and your unrighteousness, between his perfection and your inconsistent, backsliding imperfection. The second reason the gospel cannot be about achieving is that all the achieving that needs to be done to reconcile you to God has already been done by someone else, by Jesus. Look again at verse one. It says, your faith equal in worth to Peter's who went to a cross for his faith, equal in sufficiency to Peter's who is right now with the Lord. Your faith is equal to his. How? Through the righteousness of Jesus. We saw that in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for all the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. That was why he went to the cross, to bring you to God. And Jesus always finishes what he starts. Always. Friends, you and I live in an anxious age. Every, you can look at almost any study in recent years. Show, it will show you that, that we, our community, our, our neighbors, are, are more worried about the future, more anxious, more dissatisfied than previous generations. And yet the only answers that the world has to deal with our anxiety and our fears, all of those answers are centered on you, on your performance. It is up to you to seize the day. Or maybe it's just up to you to switch off and not care. It's up to you to practice mindfulness. It's up to you to be kind. It's up to you to pick yourself off the floor and get on with it. Only Jesus, the God and creator of the universe, says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Oh, there There'll be plenty of time for work. But it's not work to prove your worth. It's not work to save the world. It's not work to determine whether you'll make it in the end. That work has already been done. It's already finished. So your work, even hard work, if you've received faith and new life from Jesus, who is God, is not about proving anything. It's not about earning anything. It's about joyfully giving back what we've already received for his glory and our joy. So as we close this morning, I want you to hear again the blessing that opens Peter's last written words on earth. He says, may, may grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. What does it look like to have a life of overflowing peace? We, we all know the opposite living our lives, working hard in front of a panel of judges ready to pick apart all of our flaws, send us home 
rejected. But I wonder if, I wonder if you've ever seen a kid of a, of a certain age um, when they're just for the fir- maybe for the first time taking part in a team sport. What's so beautiful about this is that kids get anxious even at that age, but no one around them, no one watching is expecting those kids to achieve. Like if a kid in that moment gets scared on the field or they make a mistake out on the oval or, or wherever they are, nobody is out there is yelling at them. They're, they're just hoping that that kid will catch the eye of mom or dad or, or maybe a caring coach or a friend. And, 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 and those tears that begin to well up will turn to joy as quickly as they came. And they keep playing. They can stay on the ground. They can finish the game because they're grounded in who their parents are, in who they are, and the opportunity that they've received. Jesus died that you might be grounded in him, in his overflowing love for you, that you might know everlasting peace in your home, in your situation, in your job, in your family. And it starts with knowing God, knowing yourself, and knowing what you've received. Grace upon grace. Everlasting peace with God. If you've received his grace already and you want to experience this peace, you don't have to work for it. You don't have to work for it. You just have to remember who he is and what you've already received. You can just breathe in the words of the gospel again. If you're here, you're listening in, and you've never received his grace, man, today is the day. Today is the day. While you still have time, receive what Jesus did for you. Turn to him and know everlasting peace, and you'll be grounded in the best way possible forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for grounding us. Thank you for grounding us that we would have time to to fix our eyes solely on you, that we would know you. We would know you in your power. We would know you in your love. We would know you in your ability to do what we can never do for ourselves. Lord, I pray that if we are, in some way, if we've forgotten who you are, if we've forgotten who we are in Jesus, if we've forgotten what we've received, remind us again. Remind us again as we come to the table. Lord, we need to know you. We want to know you. Lord, thank you so much for giving us this knowledge. May it give us joy and peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another message from City Light South Church. You can find out more about our church and connect with us at citylightsouth.org.au.